Good evening. Uh, if I talk about it like that, can you hear me okay, especially in the back? Okay. Quickly, a couple of things. Uh, I'm delighted you're working with the Poor People's Campaign. Uh, I was one of those people back in 1965. I was working for the State Council of Churches, actually 64, um, and lobbied for the 64 Civil Rights Act, and then uh, lobbied for the 1965 uh, Voting Rights Act, and was in that march from Selma to Montgomery. I even one day met Dr. King. Uh, I was in, I think, three demonstrations with him, but uh, you know, there were thousands of people. <laughs> so I, I, I didn't meet him there. I was somewhere in that line. And, uh, but I was going into a storefront in Boston as he was coming out. And uh, I don't know, he's, a, he's about 5'9". And I didn't recognize him, you know, and, uh, until I was right on him. And I said, oh, Dr. King. I said, I, I just graduated from Boston University too. <laughs> and he said, oh, how, I, I can't imitate him. How are my wonderful friends at Boston University, you know? So I shook, that hand shook the hand, okay? Uh, so, uh, uh, and I can, I can, believe it or not, I can still feel that imprint, okay? But anyhow, what I want to talk about tonight, so I'm delighted that you're dealing with uh, the Poor People's Campaign, become a part of it. And you can get in the organizing effort of that. I'm sure Nick knows how. Um, I would think that uh, Wendy does in terms of how you can be involved, and I hope you will be. There are some very good organizing efforts going on in our city. So if you're not engaged, uh, I invite you to do so. And there, it's, it's very important right now. And I think some of the reasons for that I hope will be clear as we talk tonight. Now, what I'm going to be doing tonight is talking about white working class Americans and the kind of rage that they experience now, okay? Now, in my book, I do a chapter on racism, and I don't have time to do that tonight, but basically I try to say in that chapter that we've got something going on in this culture where people scapegoat white working class folk and often let off the hook, the kind of systemic and structural racism that's going on and how much more powerful that is and devastating that is. And if we're gonna deal with racism, we gotta deal with both. Yes, the racism of white people who are like white working class folk, we also need to deal with the racism of upper middle class white folks. But we've also gotta address those systemic and structural issues and not scapegoat. For example, I'm a left winger. I'm a pacifist, Christian pacifist, I'm a Jesus pacifist, and I'm a, I'm a democratic socialist, okay, and so on. Uh, I, uh, but I'm worried about the fact that uh, so many folks have good positions on issues, but they don't do anything about it, okay? So uh, that's a very real concern and uh, an interest, something we need to be involved in. But I'm gonna spend my time tonight with you talking about white working class people. And one of the things that liberals will often do is use the racial slur redneck. And it's the only racial slur that liberals and progressives will allow themselves. And folks, we need to stop it and stop it now, okay? And you say, well, I know black folk who use the N-word. Yeah, black folk can use the N-word, but we can't. <laughs> and uh, we need to wake up to some of these issues. Now, I can't do a whole book. <laughs> uh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna go through some stuff pretty fast 
And I hope if I went too fast through some of it that you'll, you'll ask me questions. I want to allow some time at the end for us to have conversation. How long can we go? We got till 8. 8 o'clock. Mm -hmm. And it's now a little after 7, right? It's 7. Oh, it's a lot after 7. Let's take a step. I want to talk first about the context of what's going on in this country that affects all of us. And it radically affects working people, both white working class people and white work, I mean, and, and, and working class people of color. All right. I want to just describe that tonight. There's more, but let me talk about it in terms of plutocracy, wealth, fair. Notice that word, wealth, not welfare, wealth, fair, and inequality. And I'm going to have to do this pretty impressionistically, okay? In other words, I can't go into it. But first, plutocracy, the rule of the rich. Look at this. This is Martin Gillens and Benjamin Page. They're two political scientists, one of them from Princeton and one of them from Northwestern. A couple of schools have struggled with accreditation, as you know. Uh, that's a joke. <laughs> Notice this, they studied a total of 1,779 policy issues. And they found that when it comes to deciding policy in this country, that the preferences of the average American come to a minuscule, near zero, statistically non-significant impact on public policy. What that means is the average American does not affect the central policy decisions of this country. We do not have a country of the people, by the people, for the people. We have a country uh, for elites, by elites, etc. Okay. Secondly, corporate wealth fair. Uh, I am very much concerned about these big corporations that are always talking about free enterprise, always opposing welfare. You hear, you hear how they come at it? They want a, a bunch of those folks. Now, there are some decent billionaires. I need to say that. All right. Not many. <laughs> and there are, some, there are some good big corporations. But we've also got some corporations that I think are simply wicked. Okay? And I don't know another word except evil to describe them. All right? And they're sucking on every government tit they can find. Okay? Here's David K. Johnson, wrote a book back in 2007 called Free Lunch. It's very valuable because he does an awful lot of work in terms of the kinds of wealth fair going on in this country for corporate America. Uh, he, for example, looks at Walmart. He found that there were 1.2 billion, that's billion dollars, folks, in known subsidies spread out over several hundred facilities for Walmart when it first got started. There's another study reported in that same book that found that on the basis of a sampling they did, that it looks like Walmart got $14 billion in subsidies. All right. How's that make you feel? And uh, these are folks who are on the extreme right who will typically push for ending welfare for the poor while they take as much as they can get for the rich, okay? Look at the Oxfam study, which is a more recent study than, uh, than the one I've just reported. But they found this, each dollar that America's 50 biggest companies paid in federal taxes between 2008 and 2014, they received $27 back in federal loans, loan guarantees, and bailouts. Hmm. Um, our Missouri lobbyists, I just saw this. Are you familiar with the clean Missouri uh, effort that's going on? Super. I hope you will vote for it. It's, a, it's an attempt to get the lobbyists' money 
out of politics in the state legislature. All right, if you will just go on your browser, do Clean Missouri, you'll find it. I know that, I'm, I'm sure you understand, all. you're connected with it, Nick and uh, Wendy. We saw a report, uh, it hit my machine computer uh, just this week. It says that report shows an average of $885,000 in gifts to the Missouri General Assembly every year from 2004 to 2018. We had a group of, a faith labor group lobbying in, in Jeff City and a, a state representative said to that group, they were pushing him, you know, about where his, where his, uh, his own district was because they knew where his district was. I mean, there, was, there, there, were, there, there were data on that. <laughs> and he said to this group, I don't care what my constituents think. We've got people who are bought off and we've got people who are also looking at that revolving door. When I finish my term as a representative, I can get a job in one of these big corporations provided I play ball with them now. Right. I don't know, does that make you angry? It makes me furious, all right? Um, let's go on, look at inequality. Uh, and again, we're, I'm doing on the impressionistic stuff here. If you, go to, if you buy the book, it's, it'll be out in September. Uh, you can see more detail. But here's Thomas Frank. You remember he wrote the book, What's the Matter with Kansas, some years ago? He was at the public library last year, and he said that from 1930 to 1980, 90% of the American people took home 70% of the growth in income. He said from 1980 to the present, that was 2017, he said 90% of the people pocketed none of that growth. All right. uh, in the United States, this is a recent figure that I got out of the Nation magazine, 400 individuals, all right, they had more combined wealth than the bottom 61% of the population. And 20 individuals had more combined wealth than the bottom half of the population. Are you aware that the lower 25% in this society has a negative $13,000 in wealth? They owe $13,000. Uh, that's what we're looking at. Um, let me go on. Now, I want to look at some white working class ethnographic studies. You know what that means? These are anthropological studies where somebody goes and lives with these folks for a year or so, okay? And uh, now, if you, if you read the papers, and it's valuable stuff to read, you will find that a lot of people will define working class as anybody without a four-year degree. Well, I don't think that's adequate. You can learn some interesting things from that. I'm not saying it's worthless to do that. Sometimes they'll even break it down, so it's people. Did, did something stop? You, you just keep shouting. And I'll your Can you hear me if I talk about this loud? Yeah. Sometimes they will break that down so it's anybody with a four years of college or above. Sometimes they'll say it's anybody with a community college degree or somebody with some college or somebody with a high school education or people without a high school education. So they work it that way. Now that's important to look at and important to know. We don't have time to do that tonight, but I am interested more in the ethnographic studies where, where an individual goes in and lives with, lives with people for a year or more in some cases and gets to know those people very intimately. So I picked for the book, now I've got about, I, don't, I, I haven't counted them, I've got a probably 10 or 12 pretty good ethnographic studies. One of them, for example, is an ethnographic study by a great guy who goes into a honky-tonk 
in a town, Lockhart, Texas, about 30 miles out of uh, Austin, and stays there for years and does that kind of study. So that's the kind of stuff I want to I want to be in touch with. First one I want to talk about is this is Michelle Lamont. She did a study of uh, white and uh, African folk in London, and also a study in Newark, New Jersey, of white and black working people. And uh, the title of her book is The Dignity of Working Men. What I want to lift up for now, and there's plenty there to read, I encourage you to read any of these, all of them really. <laughs> uh, she's impressed by how profound morality is in the thought of these working class men, both black, and it is a study of men, both, both black and white. All right? And she says that their identity is formed, shaped powerfully by the kind of morality they have. For example, white working class guys tend to prize the disciplined individual who works hard, you know, hits the job, gets it done, works every day. Man, I can tell you stories in the oil field. When I was working in the oil field one day, we had to dig a trench that was 100 yards long. We had to dig it this deep because we were putting a pipe down there in the ditch. And they dropped us, this is before you had all these machines. All right, this is the 50s, if you can imagine anybody being alive in the 50s, okay. <clears throat> they dropped us off there at 7 o'clock in the morning. This is South Mississippi, it's already 90 degrees. And we had a pick and a shovel, and we were supposed to dig that trench. Now the problem was, it was gravel stuff, you know, gravel uh, turf. And it had been packed by these multi-ton trucks and machinery traveling back and forth across it for years and we were going right across the middle of that thing. So help me God. I, so I was in great shape then. I was a ball player and you know I was a college kid. I was 19 years old full of pizzazz and the rest and, uh, <laughs> and I took that pick and I swung that thing and I said this is going to be easy. I hit that thing. So help me God. So help me God. The pick bounced. The pick bounced. After I had hit that about 12 times, we had chipped out enough stuff for the other guy with a shovel to begin to gather it up. Now, when, once we broke through the crust, it became a little easier. It took us two days to dig that ditch. I want you to know there was a point in that when I said, this ain't worth it. I don't have to go to college. I don't have to do this. And as I was just leaning on that pick like this, and Snook's Brit is the guy behind me. You know what he said? I think I see me a college boy that has just gotten green around the friggin', he used another word, gills. And you know what? When the day ends, I'm gonna be here and we're gonna dig this damn ditch. And that college boy is gonna be back home with his mama lying in the shade crying cause the work's too hard. Hmm? Let me tell you, I said to myself, I'm going to dig this, I'm going to dig this ditch if it kills my ass, okay? <clears throat> we dug the ditch. But what you, what you may miss if you don't hear it, do you hear the morality in that? Do you hear the morality in that? Being a man, I know there are problems with it, but we can go on for a long time and critique. But do you hear the profound kind of morality involved? Now, one of the things that she finds is that in this kind of work, <clears throat> the, uh, you also get people making distinctions between us and them. 
That's where the racism comes in, you see. Because very often they will see them as people who don't share the same morality, don't share the same work ethic. Now, please, <clears throat> don't decide that all working class men do that. They don't. There are differences in terms of how working class white guys and white working class women deal with the issue of race. We'll talk to some of that. But nevertheless, it's sure there. And that's a form of, of uh, racism that needs to be addressed, okay? We'll go on. <clears throat> she talks about cultural repertoires. <clears throat> and what she means by that is a whole range of narratives, images, ideas, proverbs, vocabularies, categories that people use that are become central for the understanding of who they are, but also how they understand life. Now she's a sociologist, I understand that. Cultural repertoires communicates, and I don't hold that against her. But if you're gonna work with working class folks, you need another word. <laughs> so I call it a barrel. <laughs> it's a barrel of, of images, narratives, stories, you know, and the rest. And that will become very important as we work along. This is Justin Guest. Uh, I don't know about you, but if I took a publicity picture, I don't think I'd take it against that wall, you know? But nevertheless, and you'll notice what I've tried to do is pick studies from around the country, okay? Now, Justin Guest studied Youngstown, Ohio, and he calls it a post-traumatic city. He also studied London, England, but we don't have time for that tonight, all right? But he studied post-traumatic cities, and he talks about the social and cultural consequences of post-industrialization and globalization. Let me say something, folks. One of the problems we've got in the United States, it's not just globalization. We could address globalization. What we've got is a kind of a neoliberal globalization. I don't know if you know what that means. That's a right-wing orientation to globalization that wants to lower wages, lower taxes, privatize as much public and governmental stuff as they can, and so forth. It's the stuff that's going on right now in terms of the privatization of public parks and public lands. It's the thing that's going on when you get a state, Missouri legislature, that votes to eliminate, uh, for example, Kansas City voting for its own minimum wage. You remember, I was one of the signatories, I think I was signatory for that one, at least worked on it. And we, um, we got that thing passed by a 70% vote. And I want you to know, people right through here were a major reason why that thing passed, okay? Uh, so, but I'm saying that it's that kind of a, it's that kind of neoliberalism. It's a right-wing ethic that's powerfully at work, and they go after working folks, people of color, and white. All right, they go after, <clears throat> well, the poor. Hmm? You name it. I mean, in other words, it's basically to continue the kind of inequalities of wealth that we've already seen. They promote welfare. Take a look at today's uh, New York Times uh, magazine. They have a magazine in the Times that tells the story of the rise of the, uh, uh, the, 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 the resurgence of the Heritage Foundation. I think it'll make that case for you very clear. Uh, Youngstown, Ohio, look at what went on in Youngstown. In the late 70s, they lost their steel industry. They lost 50,000 jobs. 50,000 jobs in six years. What would happen? What would ha now, Kansas City is a bigger town, but what would happen if Kansas City lost 50,000 jobs? Hmm? Yeah. Uh, many whites left because they could. 
A lot of black folk couldn't. Huh? One third of the population left Youngstown from the mid 20th century peak, okay? Um, now, here's what he found. I'm, I'm skipping a bunch of stuff, but here's what he found. He found that there was a tremendous sense of the loss of political power by the working people in that town, all right? And he's studying, remember now, white working class folks. That there was a sense in which they had really suffered in terms of their economic well-being and that their lives were no longer socially stable. Let me put it to you this way. If you're making 60,000 and your spouse, let's say a man's making 60, and in those days it would certainly be true, and the spouse is making 15 or 20 and you're making 80, you're doing pretty well. What happens when you lose that job and you start making 25 or 30 and she starts making 10 or 12? Mm -hmm. Let me tell you folks, that is called social instability. Would that make you mad? Would that make you mad? Well, let me just talk to some of you millennials in the room. Any of you tried to get a job since you got out of college? And you got all the big bucks, right? No, you certainly did not. Well, most of you did not. Uh, all right, so that's the thing that's going on. Only that went on in a major way in, in Youngstown. Notice what he found, too, and I think this is very important. Those who experience deprivation most profoundly and see other ethnic and racial groups as gaining advantages at their expense. Now, I want to say to you, if you study the data, that ain't true, okay? If you study the data, that is not true. Uh, black folk and brown folk are not getting a better deal than white folks. <laughs> uh, the problem is they're all getting screwed. They're all getting screwed, you know. That's why we got to, and I'll talk about that if I have time, about coalition politics and why we need to be working together. But uh, what happens if you have both of those, in other words, people experiencing deprivation on the one hand, and at the same time, they believe that racial and ethnic and other people, disadvantaged groups, are gaining at their expense. What that does is move people to the far right. Moves people to the far right, okay? Um, that says something about what we need to be doing. Let me, let me just say one quick thing. The more people on the left, you may not all be on the left, I'm on the left, okay? The more pe that people on the left disrespect and disparage white working class folks, huh? all you're doing is feeding the kind of disrespect they already feel. And what we desperately need is ways that we can begin to build coalitions together and work together around the common good. More about that later if we have time. Uh, this is uh, Arlie Russell Hochschild. I think I would just like her just from knowing her, just from seeing her picture, wouldn't you? Uh, she studied Lake Charles, Louisiana, and she studied the Tea Party in that town. Now remember now, she's not studying white working class folks as only. She's, talk, she's studying right-wing Tea Party white working-class folks in Lake Charles. That's also a southern city, of course. And uh, so you're going to find some of the rightest of the right. Um, what she found was a great paradox, that the petrochemical industry had wrecked havoc on Lake Charles, Louisiana. Let me say just a few things quickly. For example, one of the oil companies drilled into an open space under the ground, and it collapsed 37 acres of land. 
37 acres. They even started publishing in the newspaper uh, these columns that would tell people how to clean a polluted fish so they could lessen the intake of toxics when they cooked and ate them. What bugs, I'm a Mississippian, all right? I grew up 60, mile, 60 miles from the Mississippi River. I love the Mississippi River. Do you know that it's now polluted down there? Did you know that people in Lake Charles, there's a road that goes along the river from Baton Rouge to New Orleans. You know what they call it? Cancer Alley. Huh? You care about ecology? Please, let's get in touch and let's go to work together. All right. Uh, yet, these folks distrust government. I can certainly understand that. They hate regulation. And they know about the pollution. They've got family dying of cancer that they believe is toxically linked to the environment, to the petrochemical companies. All right. But she says that <clears throat> the big thing for them, hang on, don't look at that yet. <laughs> she says the big thing for them, however, is they believe that the petrochemical companies bring jobs. And so they put up with that because they've got to have jobs. Actually now, so much of oil production is run with machinery, computers, and the rest, that once you get it a, a field established and, and so on, it doesn't require nearly so many people to run it, to work it. See? I mean, that was beginning to happen when I was in the oil field, and I left the oil field in 1957. I'm 83, just so you do the math. Okay. Uh, now, one thing she found I want you to hear. I want you to hear this notion of how they saw the American dream. They saw themselves in a long line. They were in the middle of the line. It was going up a long hill, and over the top of that hill was the American dream. And these Tea Partiers saw people ahead of them, and they saw people behind them. But what they also believed was that a lot of people were cutting in line up ahead of them. And they believed people on welfare. They believed black folk, brown folk. They even believed President Obama was a line breaker. Okay, hear what's going on? Now, what, what, now remember this about Hochschild. Hochschild got to know these people and became friends with them. And I think she developed some compassion for them and she cared about them. She didn't agree with them but she cared about them, you know. But she says this, she said the one thing they didn't see is they didn't see black folks standing right beside them in the same line trying to get up the hill of the American dream. And she says, I've looked at the data, I've studied the data as widely as I can, and she's a first-rate sociologist. She said it simply is not true <laughs> that black folk and brown folk are taking advantage of white folks. It's not, not. Oh, if you want to show me one individual who did it, sure. I can show you, an, I can show you a billionaire who's a wonderful person. Okay? Uh, but, it, but it's the middle of the line, the rear line, and the lane cutters. Now, this is Jennifer Sher Sherman. I love Jennifer Sherman. She does not know how to take a professional picture, but I love Jennifer Sherman. Uh, uh, she did a book called Those Who Work, Those Who Don't, Okay? And it's a study of Golden Valley. That's a fictitious name in California. It's an economically devastated, socially isolated small town. And uh, 
I want to talk about the barrel of cultural resources in my language that she found there. This had been a lumber town, and for a number of reasons, the timber business went away. So you had, once again, you had men who had been making 40, 50,000, now down to 12, some down to 20, some of them down to 12. You had spouses that used to stay home. This is a small town, a little easier to live, a little, little lower living wage makes it there, you know, et cetera. But uh, a lot of the women stayed home, et cetera. You know, some worked, but you know, if you made 40,000 a year and somebody and the spouse made 50, uh, uh, 10, 15, you did, you, did, you did okay. That's just collapsed. Now here's what she says that I find so interesting. She says they had a conglomeration of thoughts, of stories, of ideas, of concepts, and the rest that formed their lives. Remember when we talked about uh, uh, Michelle Lamont at the beginning? All right. uh, <clears throat> she said these ideas were more secular than religious. Some of them had to do with the American dream. Some of them had to do with manifest destiny. Some of them had to do with the free individual, you know, and so on and so forth, and, and how to make it uh, in the society. But one of the things she discovered here was, whoop, I didn't do that, people. Uh, hang on a second. Um, I didn't think I did it, but maybe, you know. I hope all you young people notice that I'm showing out with my computer skills here. <laughs> uh, yeah, right here. Here's something she found that when these folks talk about morality, right. when they talk about, you know, the kind of, uh, the way they approach life, when they talk about their own identity, who they are, what they do is do that centrally around issues of family. They don't address a social issue. You know, I'm, I'm trained in social ethics. When I address a social issue, I'm gonna go find as much scientific data as I can, all right? I'm going to find some counterpoints of view, as many as, or at least some substantive counterpoints of view. All right? I'm going to look at some major ethical ways of addressing that, and, I'm going to, and I will work with that theologically, and I'll try to come up with a point of view. Okay? They don't do that. The issue is what has happened to mama, daddy, daughter, husband, wife. Another way to do that is that they work in terms of relational thinking. All right. Take homosexuality. I know working class folks that are death on it. All right. I take a welcoming position, have since 1967. Okay. At the same time, I know other working class folks. They've got their brother, well, my mama. My mama's best friend, Richard. Uh, sorry, my mother's best friend's brother, Richard. Hear this was a hairdresser in Brookhaven, Mississippi in the 50s and 60s, and he was gay. Oh, but my mama told me way back, boy, if I ever hear of you abusing that poor boy Richard, I am gonna tear your ass up. You hear it? Why? Because it was her best friend's brother. That was my introduction, really, to homosexuality. And uh, what I'm trying to say is, if you're a literate type, like me, and I guess I'm literate, but I spent, I grew up oral, 
And what, I, what I've discovered is that when you're going to work with an awful lot, not all, but when you're going to work with an awful lot of working class folk, white and black and brown, you better learn to think in terms of those family relationships and learn to address issues in terms of that family relationship. Just for a minute, when you go to a black church, at least a more traditional black church, you notice how oral that church is. All right. What if, what if some bird like me walks in there and starts talking about, let's, let's put it this way. When one moves into a study of being, one must really move into the kind of analytic categories of finitude and uh, uh, something in terms of the completion of being or the fulfillment of being, or perhaps some, 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 uh, some infinite, inexhaustible moment in time that represents being itself. I mean, I've, I've already killed you. <laughs> what would it do? What would it do in that kind of world? What if you go in and you're talking ecology or poverty and you do the same blooming thing? You, you get the point? All right, so she's saying what she found was some of these men, when they lost their jobs, their wives could get work and they couldn't. In fact, some of the wives could make more money than the men. And she found what she calls a, a group of men who began to use family rhetoric in transformative ways. That is, rather than rejecting the kind of adaptation they had to make, they instead began to talk out of a rhetoric that said, okay, honey, you're gonna have to go to work. I'm gonna have to take care of the kids more. Yeah, I'm going to do a whole lot of more of the washing and the cleaning and the rest. In other words, I'm going to have to take some of the jobs you've had and you take some of the jobs because you're taking the job I've had. What she found was that because they used a family rhetoric to make some transformative and adaptive changes. Am I being clear what's going on here? In other words, a lot of people think that family rhetoric is always traditional and conservative. It can be explosively social change oriented in terms of what it does. Are, are we clear? So <clears throat> that adaptive transformative role of morality, I think that's a key thing one needs to know when working with uh, white working class. I would say, uh, I hang out in a black community a whole lot. I would say it's also true in more traditional uh, oral black family, working class black families. Um, here's uh, Catherine Kramer. Kramer. Uh, don't you like her? I mean, I just, I, I just like the way she smiles, you know? <laughs> Uh, the, she did a book called The Politics of Resentment. Now, she's studying rural and small-town northern Wisconsin, okay? So notice we're moving from cities, and Golden Valley is a rural town, small town, devastated small town. She's studying at the state level and had a number of groups she worked with. Um, she found in her conversations with these folks, now, not all these folks were working class, but a whole bunch of them were, and they were white. She found that they had a rural consciousness, she calls it. Now that rural consciousness is threefold. They felt that they were not respected. They felt that they were not provided the resources that other people received, especially the educated folks and the poor in, and the university professors <laughs> in, uh, in Madison and in uh, Milwaukee. And so there was a real sense in which Madison and Milwaukee got the resources they didn't. And they also felt that they had lost tremendous uh, power over the last 30 or 40 years. They felt that they were victims of distributive injustice, okay? 
Um, and they resented. They resented paying taxes because they thought that their taxes went to the cities. They resented government spending because they thought the government took care of the universities and they took care of professors, but did not take care of people in small town and rural Wisconsin. There was a, there was a wonderful story. <clears throat> um, Kramer is told by one of the men, she says, he says, you know, you ought to buy a horse. She said, well, I don't have room for a horse. And he says, well, you got, you got, you got Madison, that's where the university is. You got Madison, and that's where all the bullshit is anyhow, you know. And then he said, and then he followed it up and he said this, he said, you know, you only have to buy half a horse. You only need to buy the front end, they got the back end in Madison already. I mean, that kind of, that kind of humor and carrying on with her, which she handled apparently pretty well, all right. She says, she says this, I want to hear this please, because from my study of these ethnographic studies, a lot of people think what's going on is that wedge issues around things like homosexuality and abortion are winning the vote of these folks. She said, not true. She said, it's not the deceptions of wedge issues, but tapping into resentment that's already there. And she said, they define the haves by culture more than they do by wealth because they see the haves as people like university professors, government workers, and others, that they see having a lot of status, and they don't have it. And they resent the kind of status, the kind of authority that they have. Um, and she says that they feel that their way of life is under attack. Feel their way of, interesting, she did not find, she did not hear one racist comment and all of the groups, and she met with them for dozens of times over five years. She did not hear one racist comment in her entire study of rural and small town Wisconsin. Now she did hear them in urban Wisconsin, but not small town. By the way, going back for a moment to uh, 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 Sher Sherman's work, she did not hear one racist comment in, that, uh, in Golden Valley in her years there. So, is that to say no racism exists? No. It's to say that that is not the primary thing on the front of their minds. Here? Okay. Uh, I can go into that in detail, but let's see that later. How are we doing on time? I said, oh, we stop at eight. I've got to give you a time to come. Let me, let me go through some stuff. Um, <clears throat> um, here's what she found. Identity over party, culture over interest, and economic issues were interlaced with social cultural concerns. What I want you to hear from that is, if you start putting heat on these folks, that takes the form of disrespect. Huh? Where are they gonna go? What happens if you begin to respect such folks and you work with them, not against them, and you try to do coalitions with them, not avoid them, and you don't call them rednecks and other kinds of disparaging uh, names. How does that open up new possibilities? She says they, they favor, uh, well, let me go on. Uh, the Heartland, I want to show you just one quick thing about the Heartland. This is a guy named uh, Andrew Levison. He is a Democratic pollster, and you will discover that I am very critical of the Democratic Party, so don't, don't assume I'm trying to, you know, uh, and I'll just have to tell you, I'm critical of 
Jimmy Carter and Bill Clinton and Barack Obama. But I critique them from the left, not the right. Okay? But this guy, I want to show you one picture. He talks about cultural tradi traditionalism. Um, family rhetoric operates in a cultural traditionalism. That means place, where you're born and raised, that's important. All right? It means family is desperately important. It means tradition is important. So being able to be in touch with where somebody is in that regard. And tradition, remember this about tradition. Uh, Alasdair McIntyre, who's a wonderful philosopher, says that tradition, in part, is a socially embodied, uh, historically extended argument. <laughs> I just love that. So don't, don't see tradition as some lockstep uniformity into the future. Uh, another piece about tradition. I love the story of the farmer. He describes uh, an axe. He says, we've had this axe in the family for 40 years. Now it's had, it's had six different handles and four different axe heads, but it's still the same axe. You know, it's still the same axe. So cultural traditionalism and, and family rhetoric become very, very important in, this, in his findings too. And he does, uh, oh, sorry. He breaks down on the basis of his uh, polling, the heartland, and we're talking now small town, rural, uh, Midwest, let's say Midwest for the moment, that they line up as liberals about 26%, about 27.5% are conservative. These are consistently liberal or consistently conservative positions. And about 46, 47% in the middle are ambivalent, can go either way. He also found that some of these folks who are conservative will on occasion vote for a right-wing uh, congressional uh, person who's running for office. And, and, it, and in the same election, uh, for example, vote rights for gays. He says that you can't count on this being altogether a consistent point of view, okay? So uh, in other words, single issue organizing, that's coalition with people who are black and white and brown. You can work on issues together on this, on this occasion can't work on other occasions, but you begin to build the relationships, okay? Uh, we got, I gotta let you go. Um, coalition strategies, desperately important. I have a whole chapter on that. But, uh, and then some quickly theological reflections. Again, I wanna stress the importance of morality, the importance of relational thinking, the importance of family rhetoric. And where, the way I work with that is when I talk about Jesus in these kind of settings, I think about, I talk about Jesus, I come out of a Christian tradition, I respect other traditions. I'm not about to tell God, God has not revealed self in other traditions, okay? But I work out of Christian tradition. Um, I say to people, Jesus is not only Lord, Jesus is brother. When I work with ecological issues, I work with the notion of St. Francis of Assisi. You remember how he talked about the moon and the stars and the earth as brothers and sisters. You want to extend the family metaphor. When you, dear God, when you want to talk about, don't talk about diversity. Don't talk about multicultural. Where do you come from if you use those two words? Outside. But rather, talk about where people have things in common and talk about how much we need to work together. 
I have seen with my own eyes in a dozens of demonstrations with Stand Up KC, for example. We get up there, somebody who's a white working class person, a brown working class person, a black working class person, and they start telling their stories together and you hear what's going on in their lives and you say, my God, this is wicked and wrong. And what I see is those kinds of folks coming together and working together, okay? And that's what we've got to learn to do. There's a lot more, uh, but I'm gonna stop uh, and let you talk back. Uh, we've got a few minutes to talk back. I, that's so quick. I, I wonder if I'm standing up here saying, you know, you, you blew for about 50 minutes, 40 minutes, and uh, maybe nobody got a thing you said. But come back at me and let me see if, if, uh, if I communicated a thing, will you? Please, yes, sir. Do you have any strategies for dealing with people who, in a, in a relational way, who will not accept facts? The, yeah. the, the, the Kramer lady made me think of, I'm, I'm not from around here, we moved here from Washington State, and there, yeah. you know, everybody hates Seattle the same way that, you know, yes. hates cities and everything. Exactly, yeah. And, but, they're, but, but people are completely wrong about where the tax money goes. Yeah. You know, tax money is generally flows out of large cities into uh -huh. rural areas. What yeah. do you say to those rural people who think that they're not getting resources yeah. when they're just... <laughs> First of all, it's very tough when people want to construe their own facts. I, I get it. Let me say this. I discover in working not only with, with adults but with teenagers that if you work with people so that they explore the material and discover the facts for themselves, in other words, not, not bringing facts in, but say, hey, let's go look, and you go look together. Uh, that's the best single strategy I know. I think, too, that with at least some of the people I'm talking about, their grasp of facts is very much related to the disrespect they've received. And I think if the respect issue can be really dealt with forthrightly, you got a better chance. I don't mean to suggest that's a fail-safe practice, but I think that's the way it, if it's going to happen, it's going to be from that direction. Yeah. Uh, what's interesting about the, the people in Lake Charles is they knew the petrochemical industry was killing the ecology around their community. They knew it. And yet they still had an idea about jobs. What they needed to do was go and look at the whole issue of jobs and discover some things for themselves. They're also being pumped by Fox Fictional News every day. So that's, a, that's an issue that has to be countered. And I use language like that. I use language like wealth fair and Fox Fictional News because I think we really need language that conveys something of the kind of uh, deception that's going on. Yes, Tim. Tex, if you were to uh, excuse me, uh, Bill. point us to uh, a group or a place where this kind of respectful association, working together, was actually happening, <laughs> making a difference, what would you point us to? Yeah. Uh, one place I would point in terms of rural would be the, uh, the, the Missouri Rural Crisis Center out in uh, Columbia, where they have really been doing some great work with, uh, with farmers and, uh, and with some working people and, uh, and with others. Uh, they, they're online. You can go online and see them. But I think they've been doing a good job. Here, uh, it's been, I believe it's been a year and a half ago, they came in and their farmers brought steak, uh, brat, pork chops, one great country meal. 
And they brought it to Reverend Bell's church over here. It's a black church. And they fed 100 people that day just as a way of reaching out and building trust and relationship with. So I would say in terms of rural stuff in Missouri, that would be a place. Now, <clears throat> I think... Uh, I think another place that where I see some building of that kind of respect, the, the Urban Summit, by the way, was led by Bishop James Tyndall. He's a black uh, bishop in town and uh, one of my heroes. Uh, I think that kind of reaching out, he was instrumental in that, by the way, uh, is important. Uh, I think what, I'll tell you what the challenge is right now. What we need is the black community and the labor unions in this town to come together with a compromise on the airport. We're going to spend a billion dollars up there. The unions right now are wanting 100% union. The problem with that is, is that can cut out uh, businesses that are, you know, uh, owned by women and businesses owned by minorities. We have got to come together on that thing and work together. If we can get unions <clears throat> in the black and brown community working together cooperatively. Now, I know that there are black folk in unions. And let me just say this, folks, on the minimum wage, where you've got, I don't mean the minimum wage, where you have right to work, people of color do worse. Where you don't have right to work, they do better. So my point is, right to work is a black issue. But what we really need is we need white folk and black folk and brown folk working together on it. Am I, am I saying that clear? So I'd say the challenge right now is to address that issue. Now, some of us have worked on the community benefits agreement where we hire folk out of, you know, residents of Kansas City, Missouri. That's a complicated issue. Let me say it quickly. A city, if it has a, a project and it collects taxes from its residents to pay for it, they cannot limit employment in that project only to residents of the city. It's an interstate commerce piece of legislation. It's a 50-page document. I've read it. It's great sleep material, okay? <laughs> but what they can do is they can negotiate with people when they give tax incentives to a corporation or whatever. They can negotiate with them certain community benefits. In other words, they can arrive at an agreement in which you, you will hire, say, 20%, 30% of the residents of a city to participate in that construction. Well, we need that in Kansas City because we've got this huge area of poverty, you know, in the black community. Not all blacks are poor, I get that, but I'm saying we've got that huge area. If, if, we've got, if we've got residents in Kansas City, Missouri, only at about 6 or 8%, what we're doing is leaking wealth right out of the community. See, what, see what's going on? So uh, that business of getting community benefit agreements together and getting companies that are doing that kind of building and our city together so that our, our own residents also benefit, especially, especially poor people and people of color. You know, and, I mean, you got both. I mean, you got people, white people that are poor and uh, black brown people that are poor, okay? Other comments are, you'll stop me when, when we have to, or you may just vote with your feet. Yeah, are please. Are you familiar with uh, Dr. Sarah Kindazor? She wrote a book and she predicts and she accumulated her PhD and predicted that Donald Trump First of all, the white working class, they are forgotten people. Notice, I mean, Hillary and Obama both made comments about them they later had to retract and apologize for. 
but they reflect a bias and a prejudice that is very much alive and well, especially among folks on the left. The right, oh my God, I don't know what's worse, the towering immorality of the Republican Party are, are, the, are the unfathomable idiocy of the Democratic Party when it simply doesn't get it and deal with the realities of these folks. Now, I hope you hear me. You are not hearing me talk about neglecting people of color. I'm saying that the future of this country is when these folks get together. Black, brown, white working folk have got to get together. They aren't the only ones. There are people like, I suppose not all of us in the room are working folks. People like us need to be a part of that too. Let me tell you, when Dr. King was at the height of his power, it was amazing the range of people he had working. He had, he had union people, you know, the auto workers, for example. Uh, but but he, had, he had poor whites, he had poor blacks. I never will forget when we had the farm crisis in the 80s here in, in Missouri. Uh, Jesse Jackson came into this town and started going up into northwest Missouri and talking to people on those farms up there. You had, you had white farmers, heartlanders, these cultural traditionalists loved Jesse Jackson. Why? Because he listened. He cared about them and he demonstrated it. We can do that back and forth. We can do that back and forth. I think that is an utterly essential thing we gotta do in this country. Otherwise, we're just gonna turn it over to the, to the millions and millions of dollars subsidized think tanks of the right and the way in which they wanna increase the inequality and, uh, and they wanna control the government through uh, campaign finance and the rest, lobbying efforts and so forth. So, other, other questions, comments? Yes, ma'am. And you might have touched on it a little bit, but how would you suggest that we put, we as America, put party lines aside and actually see that we do have things in common mm -hmm. and get stuff done for this country? Yeah. You know, like, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't know that we'll ever be able to put party aside. I, I, I don't know that. I wish we could. Uh, there's a guy named Rowan Williams and a guy named Luther, Luke uh, Bretherton. And both of them are trying to reconceptualize the nature of democracy so that political decisions are not made by parties competing, but made really from the ground up where real human beings down on the ground in local communities organize and get together and work out relationships with others and other groups and parties so that policy literally comes from that. Now, I don't know whether that'll work, but it's an intriguing idea. The position I take right now, I'm involved in five different organizing efforts. Yeah, that's too many. But, I'm, but I think that right now the answer for us is not to give our souls to either party, but to be involved in the kind of organizing that can influence parties. Um, and, and use things like, uh, you know, uh, initiatives in the community. You know, we got the vote for the minimum wage in town. Uh, I think we'll win the vote for the uh, MLK uh, Boulevard on the Paseo. I think we'll win that vote, and I think we'll win it because of people right here through the heart of the city. I may be mistaken, but that's another way to work. So I guess I'm trying to say to you, I don't see the parties disappearing soon, but what I think we need is a lot of pressure and, uh, on, on, on uh, legislators. And I, one thing I love about an organizing is organizing says uh, no permanent enemies, no permanent allies. So you organize real human beings with real concerns and you put the pressure on. Uh, politicians, we do need that clean Missouri piece. 
Because right now, our, our legislature's bought off. Okay? Not everybody. I mean, I know there are good people in the legislature. I know some of them. But I'm saying we basically got a legislature and a, major, a great majority bought off. We got to get that passed. And if you got some time to make some calls, uh, I'd sure recommend it. Yes, ma'am. I'm sorry. No, I was just kidding. Oh, you just. <laughs> 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 I have eyelashes like that. <laughs> All right. Other comments, questions? I'll be up here and hang around a little bit. Uh, got some books over here if you want to look at that, DVDs, but whatever. Should I give this back to whom? Wendy. Here you are, Wendy. Thank you so much. <laughs>